0: Thanks, Mika. Good morning. morning. Welcome. How is everyone? Good. Thumbs up. Wonderful. Well, like Ben mentioned last week, if you were here, um, two weeks ago, I think we were talking about hell. Last week was money. This week is divorce. Well done. You made it. You're the few and the proud. Good job. Um, yeah, we're gonna talk about Mark 10, one through 12 this morning, continuing through our study of Mark and the upside down kingdom. So um, let's just start with a quick prayer and then we'll get going. God, thank you for bringing us here today. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears and open our minds to receiving whatever word you would have for us this morning. I pray that this time would be a blessing and that we would grow. Amen. All right, if you have your text in front of you, please go to Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. All right. He left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds again gathered around him, and as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So congratulations. I read through the passage and you're still here. I half expected that when I looked up, we'd have even fewer. (laughs) Our passage today brings up the subject of divorce. And as you can see from my title slide, it's divorce, asterisk. Um, We need to qualify this a little bit. Um, I don't know about you, but I've personally heard this passage and its parallel in Matthew 19, interpreted it in a way that often causes hurt and confusion. Perhaps you can think of interpretations you've heard. Divorce, asterisk, appears in this passage and divorce is a weighty topic. But maybe what this passage tells us isn't what we would expect on a first reading. And there's more here than meets the eye. So let's see. To set the scene, Jesus has just traveled from from Capernaum to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He is one step closer to Jerusalem. In Mark, Jesus is always moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as he travels, the crowds that have been following him from chapter 1 continue to follow him, and he continues to teach them. And as Jesus is teaching this crowd and his disciples, we're told that some Pharisees come and seek to test Jesus. They do so in the way of a question. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Pause. 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 Before we move a step further, we must clarify some things. So like Ben has explained with the words of Hell and Gehenna a few weeks previously, the issues of translation versus transliteration and how we preserve original meaning and its forms and connotations, here too, we're dealing with some terms that have slippery meanings. Marriage, divorce, and adultery are tricky words in that they were used in Jesus' time And they're also used today, and they have very different meanings in their New Testament context compared to their context today. And if we read this passage and import our assumptions about what these words mean into it, we can end up in some very tricky situations and miss the meaning. So that said, let's briefly survey the New Testament world of assumed gender roles, marriage, family, and divorce. So, to talk about marriage in a New Testament context well, we must be mindful of a few things. The first is that New Testament Jews were both Jewish and Hellenistic. This means that they carried their Jewish heritage as well as centuries of Greek cultural influence. These separate cultures merged together in ways that the lines between them blurred. They really did coexist in the same space. For example, New Testament Jews read their Torah, their scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament today, in Greek. They did not read it in Hebrew. They read the Greek version. We call that the Septuagint, right? So when Jesus and the disciples are quoting scripture, they are quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Jewish culture, Greek culture often merge together. The other important thing for us to keep in mind is how important class was. The options and roles for a person have much to do with their class status. Men who were Roman citizens and the women who were their daughters and wives and family members had far greater rights and responsibilities than others did. One rung lower on the ladder was free people who had a number of rights, but certainly not as many as citizens. And the lowest rung in the social ladder was the slave class. These were people who were often poor, but could at times manage great wealth for their masters. Nevertheless, they were treated like property and had few rights of their own. So in this New Testament world, marriage and family were fundamentally different institutions than they are today. They varied like they vary today, but the parameters within which they varied differ fundamentally from the parameters that we use today. So a couple general New Testament culture household assumptions we can draw. The New Testament household was organized in terms of authority relationships between its male head and the people underneath him. These were his wife, his children, and his slaves. Marriage was functionally between families rather than individuals, and marriage was made primarily for economic reasons. Love was certainly part of many marriages, but it was neither primary nor necessary in terms of its importance for instituting a marriage. There was safety. And being in part of a family, and alternatively, to be outside marriage and family was risky and dangerous economically, socially, and sexually, especially for women. Oh, I should say this: content warning. We're going to talk about marriage and family, um, which means that we're going to talk about um, issues of uh, sexual exploitation. And so, if if that's um, if that's something that um, is heavy on your heart, then please just just know we're going to talk about that. So. Oh should have said that apologies just just know that yeah okay where were we free women women who were not slaves were expected to marry and not marrying in turn brought shame to the family among high class women especially singleness was actually legally penalized to facilitate a marriage a woman's family would negotiate with the husband of or the husband's family when the woman came of age And the betrothal contract was legally binding. This is what was considered to make a marriage legal was the betrothal contract. The contract transferred the woman from being under her father's authority to being under her husband's authority. When a woman married, her family would often provide some form of dowry. Uh, When she married, her wealth would pass from being in her father's possession to being in her husband's possession. Women were married as young as 12 years old. And we can see laws in place stipulating that girls younger than 12 can't be married. Side note, the presence of a law often speaks to its need to be instituted. So basically this law being in place indicates that um, families were trying to marry their daughters at younger than 12 years of age. Despite doctors' warnings of the dangers of pregnancy for girls this young, many girls who were married at this age were expected to become pregnant. And the average age difference between a husband and a wife at this time was about 10 years. Women were socially recognized as people albeit inferior to men, but people nevertheless, but legally, women and their sexuality, uh, which was their main asset, were disposed of, like chattel. A primary purpose of marriage was the production of children, and through children, the continuation of the family line and preservation of family wealth. Think of the rich young man from last week. For free women, marriage was a when, not an if, and children were also a when, not an if. Getting married and having children were considered a woman's chief responsibility, and any issues in conceiving and carrying a pregnancy to term were understood to be deficits of the woman. Today, we know that male factors are just as likely to cause infertility, but at this time, it was understood that infertility was a woman's issue. And furthermore, it was a problem solved by another woman. Whether a husband took another wife in addition to his first who had trouble bearing children, or whether he simply divorced her and remarried, presumably to someone who would, able, who would be able to bear him children. This was the solution to infertility in this time. So generally speaking, the power that women did have in Jesus' time was what we would call negative power. Women had the power through their actions to bring shame upon their families, through their failure to marry, failure to produce children, failure to act within the bounds of what was deemed acceptable according to their class and gender. Women who did marry, who did have children, and who did act appropriately according to their roles of being the weaker sex, in turn, avoided bringing shame onto their families. Yay, that's great. Divorce in this context was not a neutral parting of ways. It was not mutual. It was a male prerogative. We have some evidence that women of high class and family wealth had the ability to divorce in Roman culture, but for the vast majority of families, Divorce was something that husbands, not wives, initiated. Remarriage was assumed to follow divorce because singleness was risky and undesirable. A husband might divorce his aging wife in favor of marrying someone younger who would presumably have more children. Furthermore, wives' sexuality was considered the exclusive property of their husbands. The reverse was not true. Men could have sexual relations with whomever they wished so long as the person was not another man's wife. If a man had relations with another man's wife, he had in essence violated this man's sexual property and committed adultery against him. Functionally, this amounted to property theft. A husband's property of his wife's sexuality and the legitimacy of resulting children were both jeopardized. So in this regard, adultery posed a threat to the stability of the family line and the preservation of family wealth. And the Roman Empire understood threats to elite families to be a threat to the empire's stability itself. Thus, the repercussions for this kind of breach were severe and could include divorce, banishment, or even death for the women whose offspring's patrilineage was now suspect. Adultery was a sin against men. And the double standard of what adultery meant for men and women, disadvantaged women. If a woman had sexual relations outside her marriage, she sinned against her husband. If a man had sexual relations outside the marriage, he sinned against the husband involved if and only if there was another husband involved. Adultery in this context did not mean the breach of fidelity between two partners in the sense that we use it today. In fact, women who were not married or of high status were considered sexually available. Men could have relations with them with impunity. Given the high premium on virginity for marriage, this made getting married before virginity was taken through force by another man very important for women's protection, hence getting married as early as 12. Slave women were especially considered available to men, and their offspring from their male masters would be considered added slaves for the household. Such women had no legal rights for protection, and neither did their children. In this regard, even despite the perils of marriage and pregnancy, let us remember that mother and infant mortality rates in this time were incredibly high, marriage was nevertheless a privilege and something that women often aspired to because married women had the benefit of not being considered sexually available and consequently abused with no legal or social recourse. Okay, in this larger Hellenistic context, a few specifically Jewish things, um, parts of the Jewish culture of Jesus' audience that is helpful for us to know. In Jewish culture, girls were not educated in Torah like the boys were, and the birth of a daughter was considered less desirable than the birth of a son. While in the larger culture, certain high-class women could divorce their husbands, in Jewish culture, divorce could only be initiated by a husband. Wives had no right to leave. If you're curious, the only exception that we're given is in Exodus 21, 10 through 11. Um, This is a specific case law that specifies that a girl sold as a concubine or sex slave by her family should not be released after six years of service like other Hebrew slaves. She should get to stay with her master. The only exception to her staying with her master would be if he did not provide her with adequate food, clothing, and marital rights. Again, if there's a law here, we can assume it was likely needed. So this is the only reference to women's right to leave their husbands, and it's in the context of the neglect of a slave's basic human rights. In the larger culture, if a husband did divorce his wife, she had the right to take her dowry with her, and this could be a deterrence to flippant divorces. However, certain behaviors could forfeit a wife's right to her dowry. Some rabbis argued that unseemly behaviors, like talking to another man, would forfeit a wife's right to her dowry. Even if a wife was divorced and did take her dowry, it returns to her father, and she returns to living under his authority. Thus ends our brief survey of marriage, family, divorce, and adultery in Jesus' New Testament context. (sighs) Okay. Now this context in mind, let's go back to the text. Jesus is in Judea, teaching the crowds, and the Pharisees come up to Jesus to test him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Perhaps now we have eyes to notice who is having this conversation and more to the point, who is not. Women are voiceless in this text. This is a conversation between men about men's rights from a male point of view. There were no women Pharisees. Let me be clear. Women are certainly in the crowds and we're told in Mark 15 that there are women disciples. So they're definitely here in this scene listening in on the debate. But as is too often sadly the case, they're not given a voice and their perspectives are not considered in this conversation. The absence of women as subjects in this conversation is very important. If we miss this, we miss the whole thing. So the Pharisees are approaching Jesus in an adversarial way, right? Hoping to trap him publicly in some legal or theological or political faux pas so as to jeopardize his popularity and his following, which, of course, they're feeling increasingly threatened by. And the wording is kind of odd here, right? Because the Pharisees ask Jesus if a man can divorce his wife, which is clearly legally allowed. The Pharisees are likely referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which states, let me read that text. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 states, suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or the second man who married her dies her first husband who sent her away is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that would be abhorrent to the Lord and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession. What is going on here? It's like many passages in the Old Testament law pertaining to family life, it's given based on special cases that raise particular ethical or religious issues. It's a case law, not a general law. Side note, the Old Testament gives no general laws about marriage or divorce, only specific case laws. Here the issue is specifically when a man divorces his wife, she remarries, and then for reason of divorce or her second husband's death, she returns to be remarried to her first husband. It's a very specific scenario. The assumption is that the woman in this this scenario has been defiled specifically in relation to her first husband by virtue of being married to someone else. But the phrase, she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her is what the Pharisees are focused on here. It's unclear from the passage itself what these valid criteria are, what something objectionable means. And in the typical fashion for faithful Jewish people, the rabbis and religious leaders debated and discussed and interpreted what these criteria were as they tried to interpret what it meant to understand the law, and to live it out faithfully. So this question about what constituted valid grounds for divorce was no exception to such questioning and wondering about the correct interpretation. So when the Pharisees come to ask Jesus about divorce, they're participating in this tradition. There are two big schools of interpretation that were contemporary with Jesus' time that Jesus and all of his listeners would have been aware of, and they had big debates about this stuff, this stuff and other stuff as well. And like I said, Jesus and his listeners would all be very familiar with these two schools. So the first is the Rabbi Hillel and his followers. The Rabbi Hillel and his followers understood this passage liberally. This something objectionable could be anything. If a woman cooked a dish poorly or exposed her arms in public, appeared messy, or if a husband found another woman more beautiful than his wife, This was adequate grounds for divorce, argued Hillel. The rabbi Shammai and his followers took a more conservative approach. The only reasonable grounds for divorce was adultery. And so while the reasons given by Hillel appear fickle, and while divorce on such grounds was certainly not the norm, we do have ample evidence that it was common. In fact, it was even recommended by some rabbis that Jewish men divorce their wives if their wives could not produce children. The great Jewish historian, Josephus, who you might recognize, divorced his wife, and the only reason he notes was that she birthed two children who died. If fertility rates from then are at all similar to now, then that would mean that one in eight couples who had trouble conceiving children would assume that it was the wife's issue and one in eight women might be in jeopardy in terms of their marriage stability for this reason. So the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask him to engage in this debate and they're kind of hoping he messes it up and makes a fool out of himself. Jesus responds by asking, what did Moses command you? They reply, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to send her away. Divorce. The word divorce here literally translates send away. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to send her away. This is the same word when Jesus dismisses the crowds and sends them away when he's done teaching them. Or when Pilate releases Barabbas, to divorce a wife meant to literally send her away, to dismiss her, to release her from the household. This physically meant she would leave her home, leave her children, leave her family, and go back to her own family of origin. Again, this passage is not about divorce as we define it today. It's about a debate about men's rights to dismiss and send their wives away. Jesus responds, it's because of your hard-heartedness that Moses wrote this commandment for you. This was an accommodation given by God because you do not treat each other as you ought to but from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus appeals to God's design for marriage and in so reminds his readers of the gravity of what they are dealing with. He interprets this to mean that a joint pair is no longer two separate fleshes, but one flesh joined by God, and concludes that what God has joined together, let no one separate What God has joined together. This could also be phrased, what God has paired. It's it's a joining and pairing. The word is linguistically related to yoking or pairing a set of oxen together, side by side. Jesus is painting an image of God putting two people side by side next to each other and yoking them together as a pair. In doing so, Jesus is, of course, evoking the imagery of Genesis 2, where God declares that he will make a helper and a partner for the man that he has made, puts him in a sleep, and takes the flesh of his side to form the woman, who, he, who upon waking the man calls, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh the language that God uses is ezer kenegdo a helper as partner next to him the woman is taken from the flesh of the man's side and so she stands side by side with him the word play and the connotations of equality are present in the original hebrew so the first couple stands together on level ground eye to eye in mutuality and respect So we see that Jesus locates his understanding of divorce inside an appreciation for the importance of the marriage relationship as defined by God. Jesus is redirecting his audience's attention from how men dispose of their wives to God's ideal of a marriage partnership of mutual respect, honoring, and co-laboring side by side together. In the context of the Jewish debates about the law, Jesus is locating himself with the school of Shemmai, restricting divorce only to serious offenses and critiquing flippant divorce. Jesus identifies that the divine ideal stands against divorce. Jesus is not saying that divorce is not allowed. He's just explicitly said that it was given as an answer to human hardheartedness. It's allowed, just not ideal. This divine ideal that stands against divorce also stands against disharmony in marriage. It stands against power over and abuse, against treating our God-given partner as a commodity, an object at our disposal, a means to an end. Jesus is arguing for the seriousness of married partnership and asking his listeners, particularly his male listeners, to treat their wives as people, not objects. This is in line with Jesus' ethic of turning power structures upside down, of reversing the status quo. Jesus is explicitly calling for an ethic of care and concern for each other, not lording over each other. Regarding the content of the debate, Jesus is explicitly invalidating one-sided male privilege and in intimate relationships. He's emphasizing women's protection in a culture where divorced and unmarried women were sexually, economically, and socially vulnerable. And at a meta level, though, Jesus redirects what questions we ask. The Pharisees are in essence asking Jesus to weigh in on the conversation about what's allowed. What can men get away with, Jesus? And Jesus answered that it is not about what you can get away with. It is not about drawing lines in the sand. You are missing the point. So Jesus drops the mic in the public conversation, so to speak, and heads into a house. In the house... His disciples, and we should read male and female disciples here, ask him about this. Perhaps what he said confused them. Jesus here goes a step further and says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There's reason to believe here that, in, that here... Um, that in other places in Mark, that Jesus is using graphic and even hyperbolic imagery to convey something disruptive. Like Jesus talks about cutting off an eye or a hand or hanging a millstone around your neck, this language of remarriage as adultery could be meant to forcefully confront a cavalier understanding of other people as disposable. He's in essence saying that if you toss your partner away and grasp for another you've done something seriously wrong. Jesus' explanation of remarriage as adultery does something else that's significant. It brings women into the conversation as subjects. Finally, Jesus says a husband who sends his wife away and marries another commits adultery against who? Against his wife. Jesus is centering the wife as a subject and saying that she is wronged Personally, by her husband's actions. In so doing, Jesus puts her on equal footing with him and values her experience. Jesus also acknowledges that women can divorce and remarry. These women would have been exceptions to the rule and they likely would have been Gentile converts since Jewish women did not possess the right to divorce like some Roman women did. But nevertheless, Jesus suggests that they too, at least hypothetically, had the right to be subjects rather than simply acted upon by men. In reflecting on this passage, I realized that I was taught to approach this passage the same way that the Pharisees approached Jesus. I think we often assume that this is a passage about when divorce is okay, when it's sinful, when remarriage is okay, when it's sinful. We want our lines in the sand so that we can know what's okay and what's not. This passage. Is not about explicating a limited set of scenarios when divorce is okay. Jesus doesn't do that. This passage is not about a mutual desire to end a relationship and divorce. That is literally not the reality of Jesus' time, nor the scenario that the Pharisees present him with. This passage is not about divorce in the context of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. This passage is not about remarriage in light of those things either. This passage is about God's vision for life and flourishing and justice in our intimate relationships. It's about God's desire that we treat each other as bearers of God's image. It's about elevating the marginalized and vulnerable. It's about critiquing injustice where the strong overpower the weak. And it's specifically about calling husbands on the mistreatment of their wives. And finally, it's about protecting women. Our understandings and practices of marriage vary widely today, just like they did in Jesus' day. We have our own unique parameters to frame the conversations that we have today about marriage. But Jesus' call to honor and love and treat our fellow humans, including our spouses, with dignity and care rings just as true today. Jesus demands that we interact in I-thou ways with our partners as subjects, and not I-it ways where we treat our partners as objects at our disposal. But I think there's actually another message for us in this passage, and it has to do with the unfortunate history, perhaps your history as well as my own, of how we've been taught and used this passage and others like it, and the effects that such teachings and uses have had in our lives and others' lives. Divorce is presently a common reality, just as it was in Jesus' time. And I would bet here that most of us have in some form or another been personally impacted by divorce. From a mental health perspective, divorce is a relationally traumatic event. It's replete with loss, grief, disappointment, regret, confusion, sadness, and fear, just to name a few of the emotions that families undergoing divorce experience. Understandably, then, we see the pain of divorce and seek to take passages like this that presumably refer to it and apply them to our circumstances with the intent of helping. The tragedy is that this passage and others like it have often been used, or rather misused, because they're misunderstood and misused, to great harm, adding increased confusion and guilt on people who have considered or gone through divorce and remarried afterwards. Perhaps even more tragically, misinterpretations of this passage that say Jesus prohibits divorce have led many people to remain in abusive, violent, exploitative, or at the very least, unequitable and unloving marriages. How we translate scripture matters because it has consequences in our lives. And if this text or others like it have been spoken to you as a burden, if they have produced bondage and pain, And suffering in your life, let me say here that I am so sorry. That is not the purpose of Scripture. That is not the heart of God. Um, God seeks your safety, your healing, your flourishing, and your freedom. God seeks love and peace in your relationships. I believe our mistranslations are due in part to our lack of context, uh, such that we read a word and import our context into it, hence the earlier lecture in New Testament culture. You're welcome. But part, I think, comes from our own difficulty to hear Jesus, how Jesus describes the kingdom and how Jesus understands scripture himself. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we can see perhaps just how off-base these interpretations are. The good news is that we can be helped to interpret scripture by paying better attention to how Jesus interprets scripture. So allow me to uh, guide you through a couple other passages in Mark. References are on the screen. So if we go a couple chapters before our passage in Mark 10 and go back to Mark 2, 27 to 28, the scenario is that the Pharisees are asking Jesus why his disciples do what is not lawful, plucking grain heads on the Sabbath. Jesus informs them that they've got it backwards. The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. Oh, and by the way, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. A couple verses later in Mark 3, 4, the Pharisees watch Jesus treat a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and he looks straight at them and asks, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? The answer is obvious. If we skip ahead a few chapters from our current passage in Mark 10 and go to Mark 12, 28 through 34, we find a scenario where the the Sadducees in this instance are questioning Jesus about resurrection and property rights. And overhearing Jesus' answer wisely, one of the scribes comes near, and it says he heard them disputing. And seeing Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your hearts, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding... With all the strength and to love one's neighbors, oneself, this is much more important than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus reveals what it means to follow the law, what it means to read the scriptures and to interpret them well. Jesus interprets his scriptures, the law, and shows us how to interpret scripture, the very words we read about him. He shows us that scripture is given to engender love and to enable human flourishing to bear good fruit. Jesus shows us that these readings of scripture are authoritative. Seeing his example, we're compelled to ask Any and every time we approach and read scripture, is my interpretation of this text creating life or is it stifling life? Is it a balm or a bomb in the lives of others? Jesus says clearly that human life is not meant to be bent and contorted into a stifling box of a rigid interpretation of scripture. The Sabbath, the law, the scripture is for humankind, not the reverse. If scripture is for humankind, do I see it acting for humankind? Do I see fruit? Do I see it cultivating joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and most of all, love? Does my interpretation of scripture yield an increase in love for God and neighbor? We will know the tree by its fruit. And all good trees, if they're to yield more fruit, undergo pruning. And pruning can be uncomfortable. I ask for patience. Lo and behold, God sends me opportunities to learn to be more patient. Pruning is good and hard. But make no mistake, there is a difference between pruning and laying an axe to the root of the tree. If I tell my neighbor, this is a hard word, but it is from the Lord and it's meant for your pruning, but the abuse or the, the effects of that word, the fruits of that word, are abuse, despair, bitterness, fear, violence, strife. That's not pruning. That's an axe. The fruits of the tree are rotten and the interpretation lacks authority. In this passage, there is much that Jesus teaches us. We find him here fully about the work of the upside-down kingdom, confronting systems of power over appending assumptions of who acts and who acts upon, juxtaposing who inherits the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us to stand against exploitation in our intimate relationships. He compels husbands to see their wives as bearers of God's image and partners, flesh of their flesh. Jesus elevates women in a context that puts them down. And if we're tempted to feel relief that such backwards attitudes and abuse are safely in the past, then may God loose the scales from our eyes and unstop our ears so that we can see and hear and read our times properly. So that our hearts can break and yearn for justice for the least of these who are still very much among us. In this passage, Jesus also shows us that the scriptures are given to point us to love and wholeness, which is most clearly manifested in Jesus himself. If our use of scripture is about drawing lines in the sand, we're missing the point. If our interpretations bring rottenness into others' lives, they lack authority. So may each of us receive the word that is given. May each of us seek repentance. May each of us return from brokenness and towards wholeness towards the kingdom. Let me pray, and I'll invite the team to come up. God, thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for this space to be with one another. I pray that this word would be received by each of us in the form that you would have it, that it would settle on our hearts and convict and inspire us in the ways that you would have it to do, and that what is not of you would fall away. We pray for discernment and for wisdom as we seek to be your people and to walk in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.